on June 28, 1970, MASH, A Boy Named Charlie Brown, and The Boys in the Band were playing in American movie theaters. The Cincinnati Reds had the most wins in Major League Baseball. A pair of men's dress shoes cost $16.80 at Diamond's Men's Stores. And the Pittsburgh Pirates swept a doubleheader from the Chicago Cubs in the final Major League Baseball games ever played at Forbes Field. Where have you gone, Forbes Field? Welcome to Where Have You Gone? People, places, and things that are gone but not forgotten, forgotten but not gone, and the people and places saving these stories for your enjoyment and benefit today. I'm Morris Eckhouse. Forbes Field was the home of the Pittsburgh Pirates from June 30th 1909 to June 28, 1970. It was home to other things, but mostly home to the Pirates. There are books about Forbes Field. There are books about things that have happened at Forbes Field. Forbes Field is located in the Oakland suburb of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I should say it was located in the Oakland suburb of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. It was demolished not too long after the last Pirates game there, June 28, 1970. Demolished with the exception of a piece of wall that stood in right center field by the flagpole. And still remains today. And that little bit of Forbes Field that was preserved is, to me, extremely important. Forbes Field is gone, but the Forbes Field site is there. And that one piece of wall, if you incorporate markers that have been put up around the site, which is now incorporated into the University of Pittsburgh and perhaps take a photograph or two or one of these books about the Pirates or Forbes Field or a book like Lost Ballparks that has a chapter on Forbes Field, you can get a sense of what was there. It will never be the same as having that ballpark there standing as it did from 1909 to 1970. But it is hallowed ground. And it is hallowed ground in a rather unique location for a Major League Baseball park at any time within the 20th or 21st centuries. And I suppose that's one of the things that makes Forbes Field, uh, to me, worthy of recognition beyond just its place in baseball history. 
It was the site of four World Series, the last coming in 1960. It was the site of perhaps the most famous home run in baseball history, Bill Mazeroski's home run to win the 1960 World Series for the Pittsburgh Pirates. It was the site of the first baseball game ever broadcast over the radio, August 5th, 1921, on Pittsburgh's KDKA, with Harold Arlen calling the action. So it incorporates radio history. Much of the original Angels in the Outfield was filmed at Forbes Field. It was reportedly the favorite film of President Dwight David Eisenhower. The 1951 film stars Paul Douglas and Janet Lee. It includes cameo appearances by Joe DiMaggio, Ty Cobb, and Bing Crosby. And you don't have to be a baseball fan to enjoy Angels in the Outfield. That's a little bit of the background of Forbes Field, and there's more to follow. We hope you are enjoying this episode of Where Have You Gone? For more information about the show, its topics, and its guests, check out our website at whygpodcast.com. There you can also find recommendations for fascinating books, films, TV shows, and recordings to learn even more about our topics, guests, and ideas. You can also find us on Facebook at Where Have You Gone hyphen podcast and on Twitter at WHYG podcast. And now back to the episode. For most of the first half of the 20th century, Major League Baseball was remarkably stable with 16 teams, eight in the American League, eight in the National League, playing ball at what came to be known as the classic ballparks. Wrigley Field in Chicago, Fenway Park in Boston, still in use today. The only ballparks from that era still in use today for Major League Baseball. There was Braves Field in Boston, Tiger Stadium in Detroit, Yankee Stadium and the Polo Grounds in New York, Ebbets Field in Brooklyn, Sportsman's Park in St. Louis, League Park and Cleveland Stadium in Cleveland, Griffith Stadium in Washington, D.C., Baker Bowl and Scheib Park in Philadelphia, Comiskey Park in Chicago, Crosley Field in Cincinnati, and Forbes Field in Pittsburgh. And most of these parks had good, long lifespans. And as I said, Wrigley Field and Fenway Park live on today. But as the second half of the 20th century began and continued, the old parks began to be replaced. And the common denominator 
in the replacements is that the classic parks were neighborhood parks. They were defined by the neighborhood they resided in. The new parks, the replacement parks, the next generation of parks, if you look at them, you see a ballpark surrounded by parking lots, a ballpark in a sea of parking. Crosley Field in Cincinnati was replaced with Riverfront Stadium. Griffith Stadium in Washington, D.C. was replaced with what became known as RFK Stadium. Sportsman's Park in St. Louis was replaced with Bush Memorial Stadium. Cleveland Municipal Stadium continued on as the home of the Cleveland Indians after the Indians left League Park in Cleveland's Huff neighborhood for good and was really the forerunner of the multi-purpose stadiums. There was Veterans Stadium in Philadelphia replacing Shibe Park. The Brooklyn Dodgers moved to Los Angeles and moved into Dodger Stadium. The Boston Braves moved to Milwaukee and moved into Milwaukee County Stadium. The New York Giants moved to San Francisco and moved into Candlestick Park. Some of these parks, like Candlestick, like Riverfront, like Cleveland Municipal Stadium, on the waterfront, and so some water and and some parking. And Forbes Field was replaced by Three Rivers Stadium at the confluence of the Ohio, the Monongahela, and the Allegheny Rivers. In brief, the classic ballparks had a character that their replacements did not have. It may also be fair to say that that time period had a character that this time period does not have, but that may be another discussion for another time. In any event, I have grabbed some artifacts to help me illustrate the character of Forbes Field. I have a an aerial picture of Forbes Field and its surroundings. This was taken in the late 1960s. And so even then, the character of the park is really a park within a park because you can see Shenley Park just on the other side of the outfield wall to the east. But Already by the late 1960s, as the University of Pittsburgh was expanding, you can see how that encroaches on the ballpark with the university's Hillman Library right beyond the third base grandstand. And then a parking lot separating Hillman Library to the west from the Carnegie Library, the Pittsburgh's main public library, to the east, and the Cathedral of Learning, perhaps the most distinctive building on the University of Pittsburgh campus, to the north. In fairness to the 21st century, the parking lot that separated the two libraries and 
was its own kind of sea of concrete and parking in this otherwise very lush green setting. That parking lot is gone, and now it's all grass and an area for people to lounge and gather when gathering is allowed. It's a much nicer aesthetic than the parking lot was. The Carnegie Library of Pittsburgh, across the way from the Hillman Library and the Forbes Field site, opened in 1895. And one of the great things about the Forbes Field site today is the mix of the old and the new. I'm also looking at an official Pirates scorecard and review from the 1960 season at Forbes Field. And looking at the advertisements, which are a combination of places right near the ballpark, such as the Medical Arts Garage at 115 Atwood Street between 5th and Forbes Avenues at 3700 Block, Museum 26400, the phone number, inside parking, no waiting, two blocks from ballpark, $1.25. Such a bargain. Forbes Field Auto Sales, Lenny Levy President at 3415 Forbes Avenue, Oakland's friendly Plymouth DeSoto Valiant dealer. There's an advertisement for a number of eateries on page 18. It says complete your evening at and then several options including the clock, 3814 Forbes Avenue, up the street from Ballpark, Pittsburgh 13 PA, Cocktail Lounge, Jazz Nightly, American Cuisine, Boland's Restaurants, one in Oakland at the Shenley Apartments, 5th Avenue, and one in East Liberty to the east of Oakland and Forbes Field, and the Chinatown Inn, also not right in the immediate Forbes Field vicinity, downtown at 522 3rd Avenue, and I mention it only because it was a favorite place to go get a meal for Morris and Maria Eckhouse back in the 1980s. Further back in 1979, I became friends with Greg Brown when we were both interns with the Pittsburgh Pirates. By 1994, Greg was a radio and television voice of the Pirates, and now he ranks with Bob Prince and Lanny Frateri as the three broadcasters who have called the most games in franchise history. Greg Brown will join me when Where Have You Gone Forbes Field continues. For more information about Where Have You Gone, this episode and other episodes in the series, visit our website, whygpodcast.com. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter 
Thank you for listening. Back in 2020, when Major League Baseball was deciding if and how to have a season, I had the chance to speak with Greg Brown about Forbes Field, its successor, Three Rivers Stadium, and the current home of the Pittsburgh Pirates, PNC Park. Welcome back to Where Have You Gone? I am pleased to be joined by Greg Brown, voice of the Pittsburgh Pirates since 1994. And we have been friends going back to 1979, over 40 years. How is it possible? Uh, why did you say that? You just ruined my day. Sorry. Not, not because we've been friends for so long, but, uh, well, because we've been friends for that long. Well, it's, it's, it's been a long time, but yeah. uh, it, it goes back to a very good year in Pittsburgh Pirates history. And I've asked Greg to join us to talk about Forbes Field, which I know is you see a lot of images of Forbes Field inside the current park, PNC Park, the statues of the four Pirates greats, Roberto Clemente, Willie Stargell, Hannes Wagner, and Bill Mazeroski. They all played at Forbes Field. We've known each other for a long time, back to when we were both still fairly early in our Pirates fandom. As you were growing up and becoming a Pirates fan, the Pirates were already playing at Three Rivers Stadium. Did Forbes Field have any impact on you in those days? You know, not really, Mo. Um, I became a fan uh, It really in 1970 is when I really fell in love with the team. And I have uh, vague memories of my father taking me to my first Pirates game. And it was, it was very shortly after... Three Rivers Stadium opened up. It was uh, late July 1970. I've gone to, to look at uh, on RetroSheet uh, to tr- see if I could actually pinpoint. I don't have a, a scorecard of the game. Uh, I remember, I get, heck, I'm uh, at that time nine years old. Mm-hmm. And I remember being somewhere high up. Uh, I remember what felt like a, a, a I felt like uh, a, a ball that was hit in the upper deck by Willie Stargell. And right. uh, he hit, as you know, uh, several. Uh, they marked him for a time. A home runs in the upper deck. Right. Uh, up on the fifth level of the ballpark, of the stadium at, at Three Rivers. And uh, so I, I, I know it was against the Reds. Uh, at some point late July, early August of 1970. But the point being, mm-hmm. it was shortly after Three River Stadium opened up. So I was that close, as I hold my uh, thumb and index finger very uh, apart narrowly, that right. close to actually going to my first game at Forbes Field. Well, that's right, because that's right about the time that the, the final doubleheader was played at Forbes Field between the Pirates and the Cubs. And then it was on the Three Rivers Stadium. And in all this time that has passed since then, you've had the opportunity, I'm thinking of particular, you've worked with Steve Blass for many, many years, who pitched his early major league seasons at Forbes Field, and other folks you've, you've interviewed, and not just uh, players and former players, but uh, front office people, Sally O'Leary comes to mind, who started her career back in Forbes Field. What comes to your mind in in terms of the what you've learned from others about Forbes Field as your career has evolved? 
It's really interesting, Mo, to, to get a, a picture of Forbes through the eyes and the voices of others, whether they be players who played there, fans. Uh, one of my mentors was Art McKinnon, the public address announcer. I uh, filled in as the PA announcer and actually became a full-time public address announcer at Three Rivers. And uh, so uh, he, he was a great teacher of Forbes Field. Uh, a couple things come to mind right away. Uh, number one was in, in talking to Steve, because Steve Blass is a very close friend of mine, and, and getting to know Bill Mazeroski a little bit, but the incredibly hard infield. And Steve would talk about this on and off the air with me, that they would just they'd cover the tarp, the, the, the infield, uh, when the team went on the road for like a couple of weeks. And so it, it would be just baked, and, and it was like uh, the, the, the surface of the moon trying to field a ground ball, uh, which which uh, makes you appreciate what Bill Mazeroski did even more when you consider how horrible that infield was. Uh, the incredibly deep dimensions uh, in the outfield, left center in particular, where the uh, batting cage was in play, uh, th th they talk about that a lot. Uh, they talk about, well, not many people talk about, which which happens when, when you... Um, you know, the, the, the longer the time goes by, the better things were uh, in your younger days. For example, right. I never hear anyone complain about the obstructed seats, but I know, having studied enough, that there was plenty of obstructive, uh, obstructed seats in Forbes Field, but there was never a bad seat, according to those now who went there. Uh, to a degree... PNC Park, where the Pirates play now, is a bit of an ode to Forbes in some respects. The, the toothbrush-style light standards, similar to, to Forbes. The, uh, the blue steel structure of, of, of PNC Park, again, kind of an ode, a throwback to Forbes, which was the first steel-structured ballpark. Uh, mm -hmm. Barney Dreyfus made sure of that. He wanted to, to make it a strong, not wooden, uh, baseball park but but steel and concrete uh so those things come to mind uh, we we re recently uh looked back on the anniversary of uh, babe ruth hitting his last three home runs ever in his career right at forbes field which for me mo is maybe the the single most incredible uh moment for me anyway for, to think that babe ruth hits his final three home runs of his career at forbes field all those years a Yankee, uh, but did it as a Boston Brave, uh, his final, in fact, just a couple weeks later, he would retire. Uh, but you'd think he was pretty much out of gas. But on this one day, the Sultan of Swat, it's three home runs in one game at, at Forbes Field. Right. That, that was one of the great days at Forbes Field. And, of course, another one of the great days at Forbes Field was October 13th, 1960, when Mazeroski hit the home run to win the World Series. All these years later, I mean, this is the, the 60th anniversary year, how does that play into Pirates' mystique? I attended my first October 13th game in Oakland on the site of the old Forbes Field where they have gathered for years. Right. Uh, they, they actually... Uh, play the recording of the radio broadcast from that October 13th, 1960 Game 7 game. I know the 50th anniversary, from what I'm told, there were apparently hundreds that showed up on a rainy day in 2010. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Maz made a guest appearance, but at any rate, I did go to my first uh, last October and was so impressed by, oh, there might have been 150, maybe 200 people there, but just that uh, the camaraderie, the, the memories that were shared, young and old alike, uh, lawn chairs, picnic baskets, and uh, beverages, and just kind of gathered around what remains of that wall and, and, and how the people that were there, but also the passers-by, either in cars or pedestrians who were not a part of this October 13th kind of celebration, how they erupted in unison when Mass hits the home run. Yes. As if it happens at that moment. It was really neat. Again, automobiles passing by, hon- uh, horns honking, uh, pedestrians, passers-by, applauding, screaming. Really, really neat. And it just tells you how important a day that was in not only Pirates history, baseball history, and, and Pittsburgh lore. And it's such a unique experience. I can't think of any place you think of other franchises and their greatest moments uh, in days gone by. And I can't think of anything quite like what happens every October 13th, rain or shine, in the Oakland neighborhood. I want to try and compare briefly the the three places, because in, in the last hundred years with the Pirates, it's been Forbes Field, Three Rivers Stadium, and PNC Park. And, of course, you're very familiar with old Three Rivers Stadium. It's now old Three Rivers Stadium. Quite a different setting from the neighborhood setting of Forbes Field and the neighborhood setting of PNC Park. You, you mentioned how PNC Park has its connections to Forbes Field. What about the neighborhood feeling? Well, I think that the, the attempt was made, having been around, uh, as we met, as we, you and I mentioned early on here, uh, a lot of years with the Pirates in the front office and getting to know a lot of people there who were there when the team moved and who were very much a part of uh, building that stadium and what into it, the politics that went into it, looking at the artist's rendering of what was to be uh, of Three River Stadium. It was not going to be enclosed, the donut-style multi-purpose stadium. It was going to be right. open-ended, where you could see the, the, the skyline, which, of course, has uh, undergone major changes over various Renaissance periods in, in Pittsburgh uh, history since Three Rivers opened up in 1970. But... Uh, politicians got very much involved, of course. Uh, the Steelers very much involved because they shared Forbes in Oakland for a time. And they, uh, uh, the city fathers, county officials, and as it turns out, the, uh, the Galbraiths and the Roonies uh, all kind of working then together to create the multi-purpose donut-style stadium that uh, we came to know and love in the 70s that was familiar to many, in particular, National League fans. Uh, but but still, with that in mind, they they did have in mind trying to create somewhat of a neighborhood atmosphere when they built Three River Stadium. They were hoping to enliven the north side mm-hmm. by building this multi-purpose stadium. It just never did transpire. Geographically speaking, it was just too far removed. For, it was too close to the Ohio River. And to get to Three River Stadium... You had to do it by bus or automobile, basically. Uh, and it, it, so it, it uh, really was not feasible to try and walk. So some did, but 
uh, it was a it was quite a uh, a journey from downtown Pittsburgh to Three River Stadium, going over the Fort Duquesne Bridge. They tried to make part of that uh, a walking structure, and it just it, it did not work uh, over the Allegheny River. So uh, that was attempted, um, and it you know Mo, as you know this, it was a great football stadium. I do mm-hmm. believe that the Steelers, almost to a degree, the fans, many I know, regret that they, they, they no longer play in Three Rivers Stadium because for 59,000-plus on a Sunday afternoon, it was intimidating, it was loud, but it wasn't a ballpark, uh, which PNC Park uh, became, it has become. Now, when they built PNC Park, they did exactly that. They built it over what it was then the 6th Street Bridge, which was, is, is an easy walk from downtown Pittsburgh uh, over the Allegheny River, um, much more accessible to the downtown office buildings and restaurants and so forth. And mm-hmm. so they built PNC Park uh, around that. And it's just, it's a, it, it's almost as if you can look across the river and reach with your arm and, and, and grab a hold of some of the, the buildings and bring them, bring them close to you. That's how close it looks visually. And really it is a short walk and, and many uh, restaurants, bars, uh, office buildings, uh, apartment complexes have gone up around PNC Park. And, and so it really has become the throwback they wanted Three Rivers to be when they moved from Oakland and Forbes Field. Uh, they've gotten that now. It continues to grow around PNC Park on the north side. That's that's fascinating to me. And you're you're right on the money with that. And but, but you know, knowing the geography, I mean, that's that's less than a mile. It might yeah. be just a, a few hundred feet between the two sites. You didn't have the transit that comes across uh, now that, that came much later after Three Rivers Stadium opened. It's amazing, those little details and, and what a difference they make. And, of course, Three Rivers was good enough for the, the Pirates to win two world championships over there. But, but you're right. Like all of the cookie-cutter parks, it never seemed to have the atmosphere, the, the ballpark quality that a Forbes Field, a Crosley Field, Fenway Park, Wrigley Field, any of those have. Yeah, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's so, so interesting because the dynamics of baseball in Pittsburgh, the relationship the fans have had, the closeness, uh, the love, at times, the hatred, right. <laughs> to be quite yes. honest with you, yep. because of all that has gone through with this baseball team, whose history dates back, it is one of the iconic franchises in sports history. And the, 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 how it ties, the fabric that, that ties this, this community to this baseball team, it's just so fascinating. It is so historic. And, you know, Forbes Field was great, but, mm-hmm. and, and people went there to see a ball game. Mm-hmm. And, and, and times do change over a hundred years or so. Right now, they go to PNC Park to see a ball game at a ballpark, and Pittsburgh offers it. Just it's it's by sheer luck geographically that you can build a ballpark with the way the sun sets. It's mm-hmm. important you know, when you build a ballpark. Uh, it sets behind. Uh, home plate, and you can open up center field, the outfield, the entire outfield, and 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 you can then see 
a, an entire city because what, what, what is unique about Pittsburgh is that its skyline is built into that golden triangle. And uh, it just, it all works just absolutely, it's a perfect fit. And I thought about in 2013, having watched 20 years of struggles before the team finally got back into the postseason and for the first time at PNC Park, having been around Three Rivers for some great years, including World Series. I mean, you know, when, when you win, it almost doesn't matter where you play, let's be honest, in, again, in right. any sport. People will come, Ray. People will definitely come when you win. Yep. They will come. But the, the, the affection that people had in 2013, in particular when Andrew McCutcheon was announced onto that foul line, I will never forget it because I took a special moment. I was not doing the pregame. I was doing the first three and the last three of play-by-play. Mm-hmm. Our other play-by-play announcer was doing the uh, pregame show. So I had an opportunity to take an auxiliary booth and just stand and watch it and witness the uh, – you could feel – uh, the, the the love that the town had, the uh, fan base had for it, its players, and in particular Andrew McCutcheon. And when he bounced out of that dugout and he did a 360 spin, raised his cap, and he pounded his chest, basically saying, I love you as much as you love me, you could feel it. And and that's something that Three Rivers could not offer. Just when, when you're at Three Rivers Stadium, yeah, you could, you know, no one could literally reach out and touch a player at Three Rivers. You could see them. You had your upper deck binoculars. There were some bad seats, but still, they 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 did love the teams, the winning teams. But it there's just a connection that was missing, for whatever reason. I think a lot of it has to do with the the physical dynamics of being closer, literally, mm-hmm. to your players. Which yep. again, PNC Park offers that Three River Stadium could not. You've done a great job in putting meat on the bones and capturing the feeling of Pittsburgh and the Pirates and the importance of the, of the team's history. The one thing remaining needed at PNC is a World Series championship banner, which has been a long time coming. But before I let you go, I know you've got a new venture that you've started out. Uh, sit down with Greg Brown. Tell us about that, please. Uh, really uh, a brainchild of my son who's a junior in college and uh, much smarter than, than I am when it comes, certainly when it comes to the, uh, uh, the, the technical aspect. And, and we started, uh, he and I have some buddies. Uh, he's gotten to know some of my friends. And we started Zoom meetings, Mo, of course, mm-hmm. uh, down in Bradenton when he and I were uh, uh, quarantined down there for a couple weeks. He got back from college. So he and I, I continued, I stayed down there in Bradenton after uh, spring training was interrupted and we started these zoom meetings anyway his idea was to take the one of the big screens that we have and get a guest and put him like the old tonight shows even even this day and age whether it's jimmy fallon or uh whoever it might be colbert whoever but Mm -hmm. to, to take the big monitor put it on the couch next to me i've got a desk and i dress up in a suit and tie and our guest is in the Zoom meeting. So it's kind of a weird thing. Now, we see the split screens a lot in Zoom meetings where people are two different places, but this is, I think, a first where the guest is actually on the couch, uh, and and we just have a lot of fun with it. So uh, thanks for bringing that up. And, uh, you know, as long as we're in this situation, we're looking for things to do, and and the sit-down with Greg Brown happens to be one of them, and uh, people are having a lot of fun with it. Well, I think it's great. When you talk about Zoom meetings, that zooms right over my head. But <laughs> I, I, I watched the episode with you and Steve Blass, and I thought that was great. 
and you've got some nice different segments in there that gave him a chance to reminisce and talk about great moments in his career and talk about Forbes Field and talk about Three Rivers Stadium. So I encourage anybody listening to look into sit down with Greg Brown. Greg, thank you so much for taking the time to talk about Forbes Field today. For more information about Where Have You Gone, this episode and other episodes in the series, visit our website, whygpodcast.com. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you for listening. Unlike Ebbets Field, named after Brooklyn Dodgers owner Charles Ebbets, and Comiskey Park, named after Chicago White Sox owner Charles Comiskey, Forbes Field was named after General John Forbes from the time it opened in 1909 until it closed in 1970. Otherwise, it might have been called Dreyfus Field after Pirates owner Barney Dreyfus. For the record, General John Forbes was born in Scotland in 1707. He served in the British Army from 1729 until his death in 1759. He commanded the 1758 Forbes Expedition that took Fort Duquesne from the French. Fort Duquesne is now known as Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Forbes Avenue, one of Pittsburgh's main thoroughfares, is also named in his honor. About 107 years later, on February 23, 1865, Barty Dreyfus was born in Freiburg im Breisgog in Germany. He immigrated to the United States in 1885 to work with family members in the Bernheim Brothers Distillery. Not long after arriving in Louisville, Kentucky, Dreyfus had the financial means to invest in Louisville's professional baseball team, the Louisville Colonels of the American Association. That team failed, but Dreyfus got back in the game with the new Louisville team in the National League in 1892. He was sole owner of the team by 1899 when the National League downsized from 12 teams to 8. The four cities dropped from the league were Cleveland, Washington, Baltimore, and Louisville. In a history-making move, Dreyfus purchased a share of the Pittsburgh Pirates and arranged for the best Louisville players, including Hannes Wagner, Fred Clark, Deacon Philippi, Tommy Leach, and Rube Waddell, to play for Pittsburgh. The Pirates became the power of the National League, winning the pennant in 1901, 1902, and 1903, while Dreyfus became sole owner of the club. Dreyfus made history again in 1903. He negotiated with Henry Killalay, owner of the American League pennant-winning Boston Club, to play a best-of-nine World Series for the World Championship of Baseball. Boston won the series five games to three. Philippi had all three of Pittsburgh's wins and two of its losses. Bill Deneen had three wins for Boston, including the deciding victory in the eighth game. Cy Young had Boston's other two wins. There was no World Series in 1904, but starting in 1905, 
and with the exception of 1994, the World Series has become the fall classic and an annual staple of American sports. The 1903 series began in Boston with the first three games and then the eighth game played at Huntington Avenue baseball grounds. Games four, five, six, and seven were played at Exposition Park in Pittsburgh. Exposition Park was in the vicinity where PNC Park and its immediate predecessor, Three Rivers Stadium, were built decades later. It was home to the Pirates from 1891 to 1909. Today there is a historic marker titled First World Series near where the park stood. Exposition Park was susceptible to flooding and, as a wooden park, also susceptible to fire. Barney Dreyfus envisioned a modern, fireproof baseball park away from the river and set his sights on the Pittsburgh neighborhood of Oakland, home to Carnegie Institute of Technology, now Carnegie Mellon University, and the 400-acre Shenley Park. It was also soon to become home to the University of Pittsburgh. There's a fine article in the 1986 Baseball Research Journal, the flagship publication of SABRE, the Society for American Baseball Research. You can probably find it online. Written by Donald G. Lancaster, titled Forbes Field Praised as a Gem When It Opened. Among other things, he, he notes that on October 18, 1908, Dreyfus purchased land from the Shenley Estate. He bought nearly seven acres next to Shenley Park, about three miles from downtown Pittsburgh. It was one of the largest real estate deals in Pittsburgh in years. It was criticized by many people. People thought it was too far from the downtown, thought the ballpark he was building was too big, called it Dreyfus's folly, and, and so forth. Uh, again, going back to Lancaster's article, he notes that Charles W. Levitt, Jr., an architect and landscape engineer, was chosen to design and supervise the building of the ballpark. He had planned and supervised the construction of nearly all of the racetrack stands and clubhouses in the eastern United States, including Belmont Park and Empire City Track in Yonkers, New York. The ballpark was to have a seating capacity of 25,000, twice the size of Exposition Park, larger than the Polo Grounds in New York City, and Westside Park in Chicago. The location was easily accessible. It was within walking distance of 15 trolley lines and within a 15-minute trolley ride of the nearest railroad station. Lancaster goes into much detail about the different sections of the ballpark, and he notes that the prices of tickets in 1909 were $10 for a box of eight seats, $8.75 for a roof box of seven seats, 
$1 for a reserve seat, 75 cents for a general admission seat, 50 cents for a left field bleacher seat, and 25 cents for a seat in the temporary bleachers. And in that first season at Forbes Field, the Pirates won another National League championship, the first since 1903, went back to the World Series. That was the great matchup between the Pirates and Hannes Wagner and the Detroit Tigers and Ty Cobb. The Pirates won the World Series in seven games, the first of three World Series victories at Forbes Field, all coming in seven games. The Pirates did not return to the World Series until 1925 when they won a thrilling seven-game victory over the Washington Senators. They went back to the World Series in 1927 and were blitzed by the Murderers Row New York Yankees in four straight games. Barney Dreyfus was grooming his son, Sam, to take over the ball club, but tragically, Sam died of pneumonia early in 1931. And within a year, Barney Dreyfus died on February 5th, 1932. I'm going to quote now from the Pittsburgh Pirates by Frederick G. Lieb, Fred Lieb, originally published in 1948. I cannot tell how deeply I feel the loss of Barney Dreyfus, said League President John Hadler. My friendship with him dates back to the time we first met in Louisville 35 years ago. He was the esteemed senior baseball man of the country at the time of his death. Dreyfus discovered more great players than any other man in the game. He built the first steel plant in the National League, and his abiding faith in the future of the game continued to the end. The American League chief, William Harridge, said, Mr. Dreyfus was one owner who refused to allow commercialism to interfere with his ideas of how to operate a club. And good old Honus Wagner commented, I have lost a great friend. I played for Mr. Dreyfus three years in Louisville and 18 in Pittsburgh. Our friendship warmed through these years, and I feel a great loss at his passing. His generosity was only one of the fine things I remember about Barney Dreyfus. When Barney Dreyfus died, ownership of the Pirates went to his widow Florence and his son-in-law Bill Benzwagger. They presided over a pretty forgettable period from 1932 until the selling of the team in 1946, with the notable exception of 1938, but that's another story for another time. Enter John Galbraith. Galbraith, a graduate of Ohio University, was part of the group that purchased the Pirates in 1946, along with Frank McKinney, Tom Johnson, and the legendary entertainer Bing Crosby. In 1950, Galbraith and Johnson bought out McKinney, and Galbraith became president of the club. They brought in the legendary baseball executive Branch Rickey to rebuild the Pirates. 
The years Ricky served as general manager were about the worst in franchise history to that point in terms of wins and losses, but Ricky gradually stockpiled talent, such as Bill Mazeroski and pirating, so to speak, Roberto Clemente from the Brooklyn Dodgers organization. After the 1955 season, Ricky moved up to chairman of the board, and Joe L. Brown, son of another legendary entertainer, Joe E. Brown, became general manager. It took another five years, back in the day when you had to finish first to reach the World Series, but when the Bucks finally got back to the top in 1960, they did it with a season and a series and a finish for the ages. The 1960 season and World Series overshadows everything that happened at Forbes Field afterwards. In the final decade at Forbes Field, there were no more championships, but the Pirates came close to a return to the World Series in 1965 and 1966. In 1965, on Wednesday, September 1st, the Bucks swept a doubleheader from the Dodgers at Forbes Field, with Joe Gibbon defeating Sandy Koufax, and Vern Law beating Don Drysdale. The Pirates were in fifth place, but just two and a half games out of first. Then the Dodgers went on a sizzling 22-6 run. Pittsburgh won 19 of its final 29 games, but it wasn't enough. According to this date in Pittsburgh Pirates history, the Pirates were not eliminated from the 1966 pennant race until October 1st. The 1965 and 1966 teams had three future Hall of Famers, Clemente, Mazeroski, and Willie Stargell. Don Clendenin was on that team, and pitchers Law, Bob Veal, and relief ace Elroy Face. Pitcher Steve Blass and outfielder Matty Alou joined the mix in 1966. Despite the success, attendance in Pittsburgh ranked near the bottom of the National League. The National Football League, not Major League Baseball, dominated the conversation. A new multi-purpose stadium for the Pirates and the Steelers was a done deal. Unlike Fenway Park and Wrigley Field, Forbes Field became old without reaching the right point, at the right time, in the right place, of being so iconic as to be irreplaceable. And so Three Rivers Stadium was built. The Pirates left Forbes Field. Forbes Field was demolished. It is gone, but not forgotten. Let's take one more short break, and then I will wrap up Where Have You Gone, Forbes Field? hope you are enjoying this episode of Where Have You Gone? For more information about the show, its topics, and its guests, check out our website at whygpodcast.com. There you can also find recommendations for fascinating books, films, TV shows, and recordings to learn even more about our topics, guests, and ideas. You can also find us on Facebook at Where Have You Gone Podcast and on Twitter. 
at WHYG Podcast. And now, back to the episode. Earlier in the show, I spoke about Angels in the Outfield, and I mentioned that there's another DVD where you can see quite a bit of Forbes Field. And the DVD I'm thinking of is Baseball's Greatest Games, 1960 World Series Game 7. The Pittsburgh Pirates win the Fall Classic, featuring Bill Mazeroski's historic home run presented by Major League Baseball Productions. The Pittsburgh Pirates versus the New York Yankees. The DVD includes the original television broadcast of 1960 World Series Game 7. It also includes, at least the version I have, an additional disc with the 1960 World Series film, highlights of the entire 1960 World Series, 1960 Pirates season highlights, 1960 World Series newsreels, and interviews with Vernon Law, Bill Mazeroski, Bob Skinner, and Hal Smith from the Pirates, and Yogi Berra, Johnny Blanchard, Whitey Ford, Bobby Richardson, and Ralph Terry from the Yankees. The running time on the uh, package, two discs, it says approximately 3 hours and 44 minutes. And so you get the experience of watching that game as you may have watched it, when it took place on October 13th, 1960. The DVD was released in 2010. For many years, there was no known recording of that broadcast. And then somebody was going through Bing Crosby's wine cellar as the story goes, and there were a bunch of kinescopes and had some marking that made somebody think it might be the 1960 World Series, and indeed it was complete and intact. Bing Crosby was a partial owner of the Pittsburgh Pirates and is a Hollywood film star, radio star. He probably had did no harm in getting Angels in the Outfield as a Pittsburgh-based film and have some of that location shooting done in Pittsburgh. If you've become enamored with Forbes Field over the course of this program. You can have your own to a fashion. On the 25th anniversary of the last game of Forbes Field, Len Martin created Build It Yourself Forbes Field with an introduction and history of Forbes Field by Dan Bonk, an official publication of Major League Baseball. 
And what this is, is uh, oversized book size combination of some history about the ballpark and all the pieces you need if you are good at such things and follow the instructions and you have some glue and scissors you can take this and make your own model and a, a very detailed looking model it is of Forbes Field. The publication is long out of print but you can find it here and there, eBay, such places, and it uh, is out there. There are also images I referred to earlier, and some of those come from a uh, series, in fact, two series of postcards of color images of Forbes Field called Memories of Forbes Field, produced by the same company, Point Four Limited, that did Build It Yourself Forbes Field. And you may keep an eye out for these images, a total of 24 in two series of uh, 12 postcards each. And if you're in the Pittsburgh area or traveling to the Pittsburgh area or looking for uh, a destination, by all means consider Pittsburgh and the Oakland neighborhood and get over to the Forbes Field site, look at the markers, visit the libraries, visit the other cultural institutions. It is a wonderful destination. And I hope you think that where Have You Gone is a wonderful destination, and you'll join us again when we look at someone else or someplace else that is gone but not forgotten or forgotten but not gone. Thanks again to my special guest, Greg Brown. PNC Park did not get that world championship banner and the truncated Major League Baseball season of 2020, but hopefully better days are ahead for the Pirates. I'm Morris Eckhouse, host of Where Have You Gone? Our music was composed and performed by Harry Richardson. Our logo is by Jeff Santala. Special thanks to Alan Feniger, Bruce Bonner, Mark Presser. The Where Have You Gone podcast is produced by Alan Eckhouse. For more information about Where Have You Gone, visit our website, whygpodcast.com. Follow us on Facebook at Where Have You Gone hyphen podcast and on Twitter at WHYG podcast. Where Have You Gone is a production of The Morwen Company.